Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Radio, where each week we talk to a musician, artist, author, or other creative Mississippian working in the arts across the state. I'm your host, Melody moody Thordis, Director of Grants at the Mississippi Arts Commission. And today I'm speaking with urban designers Salam Rita and Travis Crabtree. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Well, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about um, some of your work in Jackson. So why don't you, for our audience who may not be familiar with you, tell me um, your current title. Yeah, um, so I'm an urban designer at the city of Jackson. Uh, I work under a long-range planning division that was founded uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, Salam and myself and one other person uh, helped start that division to think creatively about uh, how we can redesign the city of Jackson and and really look long term at a vision for the city rather than just sort of short short term solutions. Yeah. So basically, our focus is on sustainable and long term projects that are trying to devise equitable structures for people within the city. Has the city done long term planning before now, or is this its first foray into this? Yeah, it, it, it is a relatively new uh, sort of experimental um, think tank. It's actually more than a think tank. We're we're actually doing a lot of interdisciplinary things with, with what we're what we're working on. Um, but as far as we know, there there really hasn't been anything that has existed like this before. Um, our our role has really allowed us to go after projects. Um, that, that, that traditionally a planning department would never take on, whether it be thinking about uh, food access or multimodal solutions for the city or um, you know, public art within the city, which is typically not something that a planning department of you know, the 1980s or before um, w- w- was thinking about. And, and I think planning departments are start, sort of starting to reimagine what they can do. Um, luckily, we sort of came to Jackson in a time um, where, where Mayor Shokwe Lumumba decided to open this division and, and think radically about how we can change sort of urban design within the city. Now, you grew up in Jackson. Is that right, Travis? Uh, I, I'm originally from Dallas, Texas, and uh-huh. then I moved to Mississippi when I was younger and then moved to Detroit for grad school. I went to the University of Michigan and then um, came back uh, to Mississippi to sort of work on sustainability and urban design-related thinking. Um, Salam also is from Detroit. So you're from Detroit. So you guys met in Michigan then, I'm assuming, at school? Yes. We met at graduate school at the University of Michigan, um, School of Architecture. And he brought me down here, and here I am. (laughs) So what has been, um, I mean, I know we could talk for a long time about this, but what has been your experience coming from Michigan to Mississippi? Well, one, it's very hot here. But I love the humidity. I love the heat. So it's great. Um, other than that, I mean, originally coming from the north, you know, you grew up with a lot of stereotypes of what the south is like. And moving down here in late 2017, our political climate was really fractured. And so as an Arab American woman moving to the south, I was very felt very wary about moving down here. But I've been 
so surprised and humbled by the hospitality and people in Mississippi just are here to help. I mean, if you get if you get a moment to have a conversation with people who are from here, I feel like a lot of those stereotypes can be broken down within a single conversation. So that's been really nice. Well, that's really nice to hear. I'm not from Mississippi, but I'm from the South um, in general, so I can relate to a little bit of both sides of that. Um, So that's really encouraging to hear you say. So what ultimately, I know you talked a little bit about wanting to work in this kind of realm of sustainability, but what ultimately kind of brought you back and bringing Salam with you as well to Jackson? (laughs) Yeah, I I would say just um, mostly the lack of... um, action and environmental sustainability within Mississippi and thinking about uh, how our food is growing, what, what we're doing with water, what we're doing with our energy and waste. Um, it's something that's really missing in Mississippi and really missing in, in Jackson. Um, it, I, I studied in Detroit and I know the city of Detroit really well, and it is very comparable in its size and um, sort of density to Jackson. Um, as a as a rural city that's having to redefine what its vacancy is, uh, and that that was sort of a really exciting challenge for us to reimagine what the city could be through green infrastructure and uh, green industry, which the city of Detroit is really uh, known for right now. But it it makes a lot of sense for um, Jackson and for Mississippi to really embrace this as a new uh, economy and a new. Um, sort of sector that uh, could have a lot of imagination for how we're thinking about rebuilding um, our environment. So uh, we really just wanted to, you know, come and assist uh, Jackson and and Mississippi with uh, thinking about those sorts of things. In in you all's experience or opinions, I'm just curious as you say that, if do you feel like Detroit kind of came to that out of necessity or... Or, or was it some, you know, was, was there something else? And then I just think about you reflecting on that experience, bringing it here. What was the impetus there for them kind of starting to think about this, you know, green infrastructure? Absolutely. Um, well, as you know, most cities are uh, going through a lot of issues with dilapidated infrastructure. Jackson is has just as many potholes as Detroit or its water uh, pipe system is, you know, completely crumbled and they're having to, to redo all those things. So limiting those uh, types of gray infrastructure, which are like sort of old engineering systems. Detroit was, you know, the motor city. It's got uh, roads that are three times as big as most Jackson roads. And um, it, it really is an unsustainable infrastructure that it can maintain. But if you can start to reduce that and introduce more uh, ecological and green sort of uh, ways of of dealing with infrastructure, uh, you can you know reduce the cost of that infrastructure. You can create jobs. You can create um, you know all sorts of new opportunities for people in the city. And I think uh, Detroit, as a place of um, historically of production and and manufacturing and uh, you know making things, is what really um, drove that innovation to think about how you could take a vacant parcel of land or a single family residential parcel of land and, you know, create a retention pond out of it or an urban farm. Um, You know, there's around a thousand urban farms in the city of Detroit right now, uh, comparatively to Jackson. I think that there's, you know, maybe, you know, six or seven. um, And we we really have an opportunity to sort of grow that in the same way that uh, Detroit did. 
Yeah, a lot of these communities were kind of grown out of resilience because mm -hmm. of its post-industrial history. Once all of the jobs were exported from the city of Detroit, many of those people had to find new ways to live. And growing your own food is one of those ways. So, you know, we as a society, as a people, will continue to experience this in our own cities, in our own backyards. So developing that type of resiliency is going to be important. Oh, um, I know you guys um, have worked a lot with Mukesh Kumar, the uh, former head of the uh, planning department in Jackson. So how did you guys hook up with Mukesh? <laughs> Yeah, so we met Dr. Kumar at a STEAM fundraiser in downtown in January of 2018 and talked to him a little bit about some of the work that we're interested in, you know, sustainability, green infrastructure, um, urban design. And he. we also noticed at the same time that there were two planning positions that were open at the city and that there were... Uh, there was a new way of thinking in terms of long-range planning. And we also, before we moved to the city, had learned a little bit about, you know, the mayor. There's a lot of momentum about the, around the mayor and all the amazing work that he's doing. And so it's been, um, it's been a really good moment to kind of come to Jackson, like Travis said earlier. And so with all of that information in mind, we applied for the positions at the city of Jackson. Interesting that that started just uh, with a conversation. I was always under the impression that you guys moved here for those particular jobs. So what made you move? I know I asked this already a little bit. What made you decide to move here then and then have that? You know what I mean? Like prior to that conversation, prior sure. to those jobs. Sure. So um, Salam and I uh, created a um a space called the Eco Shed, which is in um, an industrial park uh, between the Verdant Edition neighborhood and the Fonder neighborhood and Midtown neighborhood. That's really a, a uh, maker space for thinking about sustainability, and it's it's sort of an experimental space uh, that we were, you know, working out of um, prior to, uh, you know, working at the city. We we ultimately wanted to work within the city because a lot of the work that we do is around public space and this was just sort of a really great conduit for us to be able to plug in the type of thinking that we were doing at the eco shed into um the planning department and i mean you know our methodology and our our um sort of ideas were were sort of being experimented with there and dr kumar you know saw you know the potential that um you know, the city has with, you know, sort of sustainability and and uh, rethinking public space. So I want to talk to you guys a little bit more about the Eco Shed. Um, for, for people who have never been, can you kind of describe for our listeners a visual um, mm -hmm. of what the Eco Shed looks like and then kind of what happens in it? And then we'll talk a little bit more about it after the break. For sure. Um, so... Salam and I both studied in Detroit, and Detroit is a very industrial, um, it's now a post-industrial city where they're adaptively reusing, um, you know, old industrial infrastructure and industrial buildings. I spent some time in the rural region of Germany uh, thinking, studying on how uh, to adaptively reuse things um, using sort of green infrastructure, and, you know, Detroit is, of course, doing that. So we thought that you know, the eco shed would be a perfect opportunity to demonstrate that type of adaptive reuse within an industrial uh, typology. So, um, the eco shed is a 15,000 square foot industrial building built in the 1960s. 
uh, for it was it was a pipe supply company. Um, it's fully concrete, a very brutalist structure uh, that sits on two acres of land um, in a really in, within a food desert. Um, so there's not a whole lot of resources within this industrial park. Um, but what we are ultimately sort of wanting to do out of the EcoShed is to create a new type of production that isn't, um, you know, traditional sort of production. We're, we're trying to create creative production and, and sustainability production out of there. Um, and I know that that all sounds like a, a very, I'm talking very meta right now. Uh, ultimately, what it is, is it's a makerspace uh, that also sort of hosts events. Uh, but we're v- trying to be very selective about the type of uh, people that we're attracting within that space. Um, you know, we're interested in people that are inter- interested in, you know, green in- industry and sustainability and artists that are talking about uh, sort of so- social equity and inclusion. Um, and it's in a very interesting er- context because it's between Fondren and the Verdon edition uh, where, you know, Fondren sort of has this reputation for redeveloping right now. It's sort of displacing many of the artists that are there. Um, whereas we're trying to be sort of a, uh, a catalyst and um, subsidize artists and, and to really be that sort of buffer between, um, you know, Fondren and the Verdant Edition to, to not encourage that displacement, but to uh, have more of an inclusive type of development and to accept, um, you know, all people and all incomes and races within, within this space and really support them. Um, so we felt that that was being sort of on the edge and on the other side of the railroad tracks, that was a really important responsibility that we that we had. Hi, I'm Melody Moody Thordis, and you're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. To hear all our conversations with creative Mississippians, be sure to subscribe to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast on your favorite podcasting app. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Radio. Each week on the Arts Hour, representatives from the Mississippi Arts Commission speak with different Mississippians. Today I'm speaking with urban designers Salam Rita and Travis Crabtree. So before the break, I was speaking uh, with Travis about the Eco Shed. So Salam, um, I'd like for you to tell us a little bit about, um, you know, we talked about what it looks like. So um, 15,000 square feet in the middle of a food desert. Tell me more about what happens inside the ego shed. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of different things going on. Our biggest, I think, focus is going to be mostly a space for production. And that kind of gets broken down into a lot of different things. Agricultural production, cultural production, you know, hands-on making. And so, you know, through the development of the EcoShed, we'll be able to really focus on a lot of these sectors that we feel like that infrastructure here is just not a really, there aren't a lot of opportunities for people within those sectors. So, you know, providing 
affordable spaces for artists to open studio spaces, you know, allowing people who want to start their first bee company to just use the land for free at the eco shed. You know, we'll have a green industry membership that's completely free for people who are focusing in the food, water, waste, energy nexus space. Um, Because the green economy is such an intersectional area, we feel like there's a lot of opportunity to think innovatively and to be really hands-on with that process. And being able to headquarter everyone within the same building is going to be really important to have these conversations happening in a fluid and in-time space so that everyone's kind of working together you know, in this brutalist structure in the middle of this industrial park. I mean, it's kind of far out there, but at the same time, it feels like it's very Jackson. Every time somebody comes and visits the building, they're like, this is so exciting, but it also doesn't feel that foreign, Mm -hmm. you know? So that's really nice to hear from people who visit the site as it's currently undergoing its construction phase. Um, And so while we've been at the Eco Shed, we've also been able to lead a lot of different tactical urbanism projects, which tactical urbanism is basically taking this idea of uh, small financial impact and having big social gains. So one of those projects that we've been able to carry out by having the Eco Shed is Parking Day, for example. A lot of the different projects Travis and I have worked on through the city of Jackson, we've used the Eco Shed as a space for a lot of the in-kind donations to store uh, items or to build parklets or to, you know, organize people to have conversations about, you know, what this event could potentially look like. So it's really nice having that space to do that type of work in and then to be able to take whatever we're building within the eco shed out into the world. So, for example, the parklet in front of Basil's on Congress in between Capitol and Amit. Is, was built inside the eco shed. And so then, let's back up just a little bit. So for 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 our listeners who don't know what a parklet is, okay, right? Yeah, so, yeah. So tell our listeners parklet. what, what a parklet. I know I, I use that, that word so means. freely, but I, <laughs> people don't really know what it means. So a parklet is basically taking a mini parking spot and turning it into a mini park. So taking a parking spot, a typical parking spot, uh-huh. and turning it into a mini park. That's basically what a parklet is. So we've been able through an a- AARP community challenge grant, we've We've been able to take $15,000 in grant funding um, and turn it into a four-space parklet where we've been able to hold, hold different events. Um, the restaurants use it free of charge. The residents at the Plaza Building downtown are able to utilize it for different events. And we've also been using it as the headquarters for where our parking day occurs. And for those people who don't know exactly what I'm talking about, if they've ever been to Jacktoberfest, or I think you've done a event uh-huh. there as well. Yeah, I did an open streets event there called Jackson Streets Alive um, for several years that has a lot of these same elements. Um, so it's uh, near kind of Smith Park downtown and near the governor's mansion if that yes. helps orient people yeah it's right on access with the capitol right across from smith park right next to the governor's Mount- mansion and right down the street from city hall and that is all very intentional being able to have all of those city to local state and federal institutions be visible are, is super important to expand this conversation outside of just our creative communities. It's important that our state legislators are seeing what we're doing. It's important that people who work in the legal facilities downtown, the businesses. So, you know, we found that Congress Street was a really great area to do a lot of that work because it's so, you know, you're, you're connecting to so many different types of people downtown. It, um, 
how would you explain kind of the purpose of, of a parklet or um, parking day to people who might say, well, how does that tie into the arts or how does that tie into, you know, kind of urban design? I mean, you know, we, we understand the importance of people getting outside and being communal, but, um, but, but tell me a little bit about y'all's vision for why something like that um, is important for a revitalization. You told us we weren't supposed to talk about transportation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're interested in all quality of life issues, yeah. but um, yeah. it all ties together. Um, so around 90% of the people within Jackson are driving to work. Um, so that means that our streets are very car-oriented and our public space and public life is not, um, is, is not as great as what other cities are as, that are more human-scale design-centered. Um, so, you know, our Jackson's really built around the car. It's very sprawling. It's not very connected and it's very, uh, difficult to walk from one place or bike from one place to the other. Um, but if you can have these little moments of public space that try to encourage people to get outside to, to sort of enhance your quality of life, that's really our goal is, is working within the public space and rethinking what, you know, what our streets can look like in this vehicular infrastructure because, um, right now, our public space is really about getting people from one place to the next, not allowing them to stay and linger, mm. um, which was uh, Dr. Kumar was just so interested in getting people just to linger and not think about from A to B, but to, you know, sort of be able to meander and, and to enjoy those spaces that are in between your destinations. Uh, well, for regular listeners of the show, um, you'll know that I talk about a concept called creative placemaking um, quite a bit. And, 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 and a lot of the things we're talking about today is, is an example of that kind of work. And, and the idea is really to take the arts as a, and use them as a catalyst um, to, you know, help social issues or to help connect people or, you know, to put focus on place. And it's not about necessarily making the place. In my opinion, I think it's about valuing the place, you know and telling the story of these local places. Um, and I say that, too, because, you know, I've, I've heard from people across the state in more rural communities who don't um, don't relate to the word tactical urbanism, for example, right? It has a very urban feel. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm just curious from y'all's experiences um, or thoughts or study, um, is there any advice or thoughts you might give for um, implementing tactical urbanism methods in more rural or smaller towns? Yeah, I mean, I think one way I try to talk to people about tactical urbanism um, outside of urban design, you know, other urban designers or architects or planners or organizers is thinking about talking and talking to people about how we need to create spaces that are about production and not just consumption. Mm. So I think that, you know, allowing people to think about how they can add to their community is really important and how they can be activators of their community. Mm -hmm. And so I think in these rural areas, it's really important to start with, you know, the 
older members of the community that have been there for a really long time and to get in touch with them because especially in these rural neighborhoods and rural parts of the state, they're the people that are really kind of carrying on the torch of the history and the cultures of the space. And um, they're the ones who I think can have the largest impact in their areas. Unfortunately, they're also the types of the, the demographic of people that don't necessarily have access to the internet or tools that can actually make a lot of these things and connect with people mm-hmm. um, since we're, you know, we're so online nowadays. Um, so I think that, you know, if I was an urban designer going into these rural communities, I would start with the older members of the community first. I would go to churches. I would go to other community organizations that have been staples of that community. And I think it's just really important to sit there and listen for a really long time and to just learn about, you know, I don't think it, I don't think you should ever approach a city or a person or an organization by saying, you know, I want to help you X, Y, Z. You know, I think it's important to spend a decent amount of time just learning about the neighborhood, learning about the community, learning about what issues they're dealing with before you can help somebody. Because then you realize how our liberation or our issues are all kind of tied in together and that it's not just about you helping somebody else, but we're all helping each other. I know you guys have done a lot of community work and, um, you know, I completely agree with you. I think that we get so stuck in this idea of community buy-in. Um, that we have ceased to um, forget to kind of back up and have these conversations with the community itself so that they can figure out kind of their own solutions to their own issues. Um, And then kind of having, I I don't know what the opposite of buy-in is, right? But like where they're coming alongside and you're all creating together and coming up with solutions. I mean, I think that a lot of this is prominent in the work that you guys do and what I know of you guys it's how I approach things um, so I really like that about the older generation and and really listening you know we talk a lot about stories and using arts to tell stories and to tell you know the story of a place and the people um, and and what a place is so um, I want to talk a little bit about um, working with artists in particular um, and so kind of as we talk about using the arts um, as a catalyst tell me about um, the fertile ground project so um, this was part of the bloomberg philanthropies public art challenge that encourages mayors to partner with artists uh, to elevate the value of including the creative sector when developing solutions to some of these issues um, so tell us a little bit about what that project was what it was like getting that award and then kind of the beginnings of sketching that out and your process and thought you know thoughts with that yeah um the fertile ground project was really birthed out of what we were sort of talking about earlier with us coming here to work on sustainability and the eco shed and thinking about food access um we both have experience with uh, doing research within um, urban areas with food access and thinking about design, uh, tactical urbanism and design solutions for uh, food, health, um, learning, and mobility systems. So a lot of the research that we sort of were developing around food access was easily sort of plugged into this public art challenge proposal. Um, The Bloomberg Public Art Challenge is essentially using public art to talk about a civic issue. Um, And here in Mississippi, uh, one of the best issues to talk about is food because of how many different um, sort of divisions it hops over between, you know, health, transportation, public space, um, community. um, And, and, you know, food has just got so – our food system has so 
wide of roots uh, within Mississippi that um, it just made perfect sense to sort of talk about it. Um, and the way that we're talking about um, food sort of within the Fertile Ground Public Art Challenge is we're creating, um, you know, installations and other things that are talking about the problems with food access within Jackson, but also, um, you know, the, the state. Uh, so Mississippi is number one in food insecurity. Um, you know, Jackson, not that long ago, was rated one of the most unhealthy cities within America. Um, and a lot of it comes back to the type of food that we're eating and the type of food we have access to. Uh, and the way our city is built and designed. And the way the city is built and designed. Um, so we're really trying to focus on, you know, creating spaces that have dialogue around uh, enhancing food access. Um, so it's a, it's a very, very big project. Uh, we have installations, art installations that are happening within food deserts across the city of Jackson. We have uh, nine different installations. Um, we've, all, we've been using the EcoShed as a production site where we've been making and growing things that are then being disseminated uh, across the city um, and sort of experimenting with. Uh, we have a documentary that um, is talking about food access and, you know, the industrialized food system, who the people are here working on that, working to change the food system and sort of what the future can be within the city and the state. Um, and then ultimately, we're ending it with a project expo, um, which is supposed to be happening in April 9th through the 11th. But we're having issues with the coronavirus, of course, so we are going to have to be postponing uh, that expo. But to um, talk a little bit more about the artists and how we've been working with people locally. Um, so originally, uh, when we were writing the grant, we put out an open call and you know, discovered artists through that process. And then after that, we reached out to a few nationally recognized artists and um, heard back from them. And then in addition to all of that, we're thinking about artists outside of the traditional framework. So we're working with a very interdisciplinary team of people, chefs, farmers, architects, landscape architects, nutritionists, policymakers. Those are all people that we're thinking about when we're considering artists within the community. I'm Melody Moody Thordis, and you're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. To hear all our conversations with creative Mississippians, be sure to subscribe to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Radio. Each week on the Arts Hour, representatives from the Mississippi Arts Commission speak with different creative people living in Mississippi. Today I'm speaking with urban designers Salam Rita and Travis Crabtree. We're talking about a project called Fertile Ground, inspiring dialogue about food access. So will you guys tell our listeners why you chose food access as something to focus on and then how you see the arts tying into that um that may be a leap for for a lot of people so i'm i'm so interested for our listeners to to learn how how that links together with creativity yeah so so food access is a, a major issue within the city of jackson and the state as as i mentioned um you know the state is number one in food insecurity we have a lot of food deserts, uh, which are areas that have limited access to affordable and nutritious food. Um, we also use the term food swamp, which is an area that has an abundance of fast food or junk food or uh, convenience stores and liquor stores that are outweighing healthy options. Um, and then we also consider food oases as uh, places that do have grocery stores and access to healthy foods. Um, so we're using public art as a medium to catalyze conversations. Um, we actually received a lot of criticism in the beginning of the project. Uh, you got this million-dollar grant. Why aren't you feeding people with a million-dollar grant? Well, you know, that's not necessarily a sustainable long-term solution. We've, through this project, um, this the art really has grown legs and networks that has become way bigger than a $1 million project, but it was through public art and through uh, using um, it as a medium to sort of grow and get attention to this topic uh, because, you know, people are, are looking at it and, you know, they're, they're having conversations and um, there's just being so many more spinoffs off of uh, it being art versus just a, a grant that is going to feed people for a, sh- a very short amount of time. Yeah, so, you know, we're using public art to spark conversation and action on building resilient, healthy, and equitable food systems within the city. And we're also trying to, you know, rebuild some community connections that the city has with different networks. So we've been able, through this project, to work with different organizations that the city has either never worked with before or has worked with and just doesn't have a good relationship with. So being able to rebuild those connections with people has been a great opportunity. And really, at the end of the day, food access is a topic that affects us all. If you're upper class, if you're lower class, if you're middle class, you know, if you're black, if you're white, you know, everyone that eats is a food advocate. So in our opinion, so a lot of people can connect with us through this project. When this project was originally debuted in November that we had received the grant, we got an outpouring of emails of people who wanted to participate in this project in some capacity. And to me, that blew my mind because I've never worked on a project before where I've had so many people interested in working on it with me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, throughout the pro- throughout the process of understanding who we were working with, a lot of it uh, came down to, you know, who's or who's been doing this work for a really long time. You know, what have they been doing and what parts of the city have they been doing it in? And this is very much a very Jackson focused project. But like Travis said, this is an issue that affects the whole state. And it's all parts of Jackson, too, right? I mean, you guys really, it seems like, have done uh, a very intentional job at 
um, I don't want to say activating, but working with all different parts. Let's talk a little bit about, I don't want to skip forward here, but um, about kind of the, the sites of the project, just so you can kind of talk about the different parts and different um, types of people like schools, um, you know, that are involved. Absolutely. Yeah, so we wanted to be very um, intentional about touching every part of Jackson, um, you know, particularly the areas of Jackson that are experiencing the most food insecurity, um, like Central and, and West Jackson and South Jackson. Um, a lot of the installations are sort of concentrated within the Ferris Street, um, um, Smith, or uh, downtown sort of area. Uh, we, we have installations in Midtown. We have installations in Mid-City, which is across the other um, side of the railroad track. Uh, and then we have a few on West Capitol and, and at Footprint Farms. Um, we were very intentional about where we were placing these, uh, just from a, a walkability proximity also, um, just because the physical installations are not touching every single part of Jackson. We do have a documentary that is going through every single uh, neighborhood within the city that is really, um, you know, helping helping to expose people to the information about the types of food insecurity and, and food solutions that are happening within each one of these neighborhoods. Yeah. And so, you know, another part of it being outside is that we wanted to make sure that we were locating these installations in informal spaces that were highly accessible to the public. And so by, you know, deformalizing the spatial location of these installations, we're also able to make it more accessible to people so that they don't feel like they have to go inside of a museum or go inside somewhere that feels foreign to them. And the fact that it is in people's backyard and neighborhoods is really important to us. So these installations are also part of the uh, Bloomberg Public Art Challenge is that, you know, public art is meant to kind of catalyze economic development within these neighborhoods. So a lot of it is also about bringing attention to these parts of the city that do are, are currently being underserved and hopefully can bring attention to them so that they receive resources. So can you give us an example of some of the informal spaces that you guys are referring to? Yeah, so every everything ranges from, um, you know, elementary school to a single-family vacant lot to, um, you know, a city park to a, commer a vacant commercial area, an industrial area, uh, even, you know, a farm at the countryside. We really wanted to make sure that we were capturing each type of land possible um, to imagine what it could become sort of in the future. That has not been easy to do to work on so many different pieces of land. I won't lie to you. It would be much easier to stuff everything within a museum and, and, and to be able to, you know, call it a day. But working, it, it's required so much community engagement with so many different communities and permissions and uh, inclusion. Um, you know, it, it really has been difficult, but the product is going to be so much better uh, because of that. Um, so, you know, the, the work that we're doing with Galloway Elementary, I think, is a, is a great example. Um, we have two installations there. One is a really, really large mural that you can view from uh, Woodrow Wilson and Bailey Avenue uh, that was designed by a local artist named Tyler Tadlock, who's also been the branding identity designer for the entire project. Um, you know, he's created the book. He's created the website. He's created um, even the music. You know, he's a musician. So... It's really been a, a, a full gamut of what, what Tyler has done, um, but he created this mural, which is um, slightly larger to, than the Welcome to Jackson mural, making it 
maybe the largest mural in the city. I don't know. I think that the um, the Iron Horse recently received a really large mural. Um, so they're probably comparable. But uh, it's talking about the need for uh, more farm to school uh, happening within the school systems and far- local farmers working with the schools, um, especially times like this with, you know, the virus and, and uh, you know, uh, unpredictability. Um, so that is one example of, you know, an art installation that is happening there. We're also working with the MSU Design Build program. Uh, that's landscape architects and architects that are uh, building a learning garden there within that space that's supposed to be sort of a sustainability learning garden. It's uh, We're going to be 3D printing all of the planters and the um, the seating areas out of concrete. It's some of the first 3D printed concrete that will be within the state. Um, and farmer Sam Humphrey is, is in charge of sort of maintaining that for a two-year period, training the teachers um, on, on how to, you know, create an edible curriculum within their class um, and teaching students uh, mathematics and science and, um, and reading through the garden space. So there's been a lot of thinking and challenges, um, you know, amongst the different communities that we're working in and the different types of demographics. You know, when you're engaging a student, uh, an elementary student, compared to a, um, you know, a, an older uh, community that's on the west on the west capital side, uh, it, it requires a whole different type of engagement. So let's talk a little bit about um, some of the artists that are involved. Tell me about those. Yeah, we're working with a lot of local and national artists. Um, some of our local artists that we've been working with is Adrienne Dominic. She is a visual artist out of the Midtown area. Um, her and Tyler actually have a collective called And Gallery, which is uh, going to be hosting the Kara Walker uh, exhibition, which is really exciting. Um, Kara is one of our national artists that we're working with, and she has been kind enough to lend us her the remaining fist from a subtlety, which is Figa, and it's a sugar sculpture fist that is bigger than the size of this room that we're in right now. And in addition to that, we're also working with Scott Allen from A Plus Signs, who's a local artist who's been able to fabricate a lot of our signage. We're also working with Daniel Johnson from Significant Developments. He's been able to organize a lot of the events for us at Galloway Elementary. We've been working with DJ Baker, who is a local urban farmer, and he's also going to be leading a fermentation workshop. We've been working with Melissa Brooks from the Lighthouse Black Girl Projects, which uh, leads a group called Earth Champions. We're working with Skip Kuhn, who's out of, who is a performer and an activist within Jackson. So those are some of our local artists. And then some of our national artists that will be visiting include Mark Bittman, who is an author um, and, and an activist in the food world. I already uh, listed Kara Walker, who's one of our national artists as well. RVTR and Akoa Key, who are architects and designers so we're working with the large I feel like I can list yeah. them on and on and on. We we literally have probably about 60 plus collaborators on this project. I mean, what you guys have, have done, I mean, we've just skimmed the surface of this project. So where can people find out more if they want to learn about Fertile Ground and um, the rescheduling of the expo, which we I know we didn't talk about, but we have plenty of time to tell people about later. Yeah. Um, you can visit our website, www.fertilegroundjxn.com or any of our social media sites. We have a Facebook and Instagram and a Twitter, and they're all listed under the Fertile Ground Project. 
Hi, I'm Melody Moody Thordis, and you're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast. You can also hear the show on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. To hear all our conversations with creative Mississippians, be sure to subscribe to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere.